Hey, Magic Lantern listeners, there is no opening scene today because this episode is our annual rundown of our 31 days of horror viewing schedule. So we've got a special person in the studio with us today. We do. He features in one of our films, and that's uh, Wolfman Jack. Oh, that's right. This is Wolfman Jack, baby, <laughs> with the stacks on wax for your Halloween <laughs> listening enjoyment. That was really good. That's weird, actually, because the thing I want to ask is, how did your mom get in here? <laughs> anyway, on with the show. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Coro Lane, and welcome to episode 143, this year's review of our 31 Days of Horror Viewing Slate, the Magic Jack-O-Lantern of 2020. Man, that Wolfman Jack thing is hard on your throat. Oh, I'm sorry, babe. That's okay. This is the capstone. I should say, to all of our Halloween activities every year and for our theme this time, we are celebrating the spirit of the drive-in. Two things have been the impetus for that, I think. One, Joe Bob Briggs is back on Shudder with his show, The Last Drive-In, which we have been enjoying immensely. And two, with the pandemic and the requisite social distancing, the drive-in is currently the best and safest way to still get to go to the movies. So before we get started here, what is your experience with the drive-in? Did you go to the drive-in a lot? We must have when I was very little, but I don't have any memories of that. My only real memory of the drive-in is going to see the movie Speed with some high school friends. And it seemed like a good choice because we could watch from the back of a pickup truck and the dialogue was not super important and we had a great time. Well, we had two nearby when I was growing up, and they were both in Lawton, Oklahoma. One was the Hankins, and the other was the 82nd Twin. And I preferred the 82nd Twin because, as the name suggests, it had two screens showing simultaneously positioned at opposite ends of a huge field. And if your movie was boring, or the other one was a little bit dirtier... You could turn around and watch the other movie through your rear window. Uh, that sounds like the best time ever. Yeah, it was great. I just loved the atmosphere of the drive-in in general. To me, it's one of those anything-can-happen kind of places for a kid's imagination. I just picture all of your drive-in experiences being like the movie Twister when the Twister hits the drive-in, because you're from Oklahoma. That only happened a few times. Okay. While we're talking drive-in fare here, to kind of set our ground rules, we should probably mention that we didn't split hairs too much between what would be drive-in fare versus grindhouse versus video store culture. There's some shared DNA with all of those things in the cult canon. I do think they each have their own distinct vibe, but we did play a little fast and loose here with what we set out as our parameters. But I think by and large, you could easily imagine all of these titles on the drive-in screen in their own time. A couple of these I want to see right now at the drive-in. I guess we're just going to have to go buy one and recreate that experience somehow. But this was just fun from start to finish. All right then, but let's get to our impressions. What we thought of these 31 movies. What do you have first for us? 
We kicked it off with a bang with Piranha from 1978, or Piranha, as Barbara Steele pronounces it. That was directed by Joe Dante and co-written by John Sayles, which is something I always forget until those opening credits. My notes say the exact same thing. It stars Bradford Dillman, Heather Menzies, Kevin McCarthy, Keenan Wynn, Dick Miller, and Barbara Steele, as I mentioned. It's about flesh-eating piranhas who are accidentally released into a summer resort's rivers and the guests become their next meal. So you've got all the Roger Corman crew here and it is awesome. So much fun. I always enjoy Heather Menzies. She's in another one of my favorites. (laughs) And Bradford Dillman has some solid sci-fi in his resume. Here he comes across to me a little more like the kinder, gentler Rip Torn. That is, you've nailed that on the head. You're so right with that. My favorite line here is Dick Miller saying, what about the damn piranhas? And his underling saying, they're eating the guests, sir. Yeah, this was one of those as kids that was legendary in your peer group before you even got to see it. The holy trinity of whispers on the playground movies for me was this, Alien, and Cheech and Chong's Up in Smoke. Honorable mention goes to They Call Me Bruce. In addition to the things that you mentioned that are great about it, I think one of the things that we both respond to, this Central Texas backdrop, is really fun for us to get to point out, hey, we've been there, we know that spot. And I don't want to overlook the super cool Harryhausen-style creature that is roaming about in the lab. This isn't just nature, they are enhanced by science. And maybe the biggest point for me that sets this apart from everything else like it, all these other Nature's Revenge movies, is that kids are definitely on the menu. There's one attack sequence that's practically nothing but kids. Yeah, there's a dead kid body here, by the way. But it's still really fun. And then with the next choice, you really let us down. (laughs) Right off the bat, my first choice was Vampire Hookers from 1978 also. And that's directed by Sirio Santiago, and it stars Trey Wilson, Bruce Fairbairn, and John Carradine. And Carradine is an aged vampire who has a bevy of vampiric beauties who lure many of their customers back to his lair. All the while, we have a pair of virile young sailors that get mixed up in their shenanigans. So maybe the less said, the better about this one when it comes down to it. Uh, No, I'm going to say some stuff. Lazy, racist, offensive, (laughs) dull. I have some counterpoints, maybe. But anything that we do say about it, should be done as badly recorded ADR as a tribute to the film itself. Oh my God, that ADR is so terrible. Somehow, Trey Wilson still manages to be fun to watch in this. Lantern favorite, Trey Wilson. We should mention, this is a long time before he found his way to more respectable titles like Raising Arizona, Bull Durham, things like that. But the counterpoint, one thing I have to say in its favor is how sexually open it is with a big maybe. Because I will say, this is literally the only horror film I know, that I'm aware of at least, that was filmed primarily in ladyboy clubs in the Philippines and seemed super comfortable doing so considering how much time we spend with that as a backdrop. But, what points they gain there, they turn around and give right back with a character that can only be described as the film's flatulent Renfield. But then, don't forget the title song at the end either, which includes the line... They're vampire hookers, and blood is not all they suck. Oh, God. I've already forgotten it. 
<laughs> you ready to go to the next one? Okay. What did you have next? I've got a stinker too. And that is Killer Crocodile from 1989. Directed by Fabrizio De Angelis, <laughs> billed here as Larry Ludman. <laughs> so great. Yeah. With Richard Anthony Crenna, Pietro Gagnardi, John Harper, Sherry Rose, and Van Johnson, of all people. Who looks pretty much the whole time like a lobster that you just left in the pot too long. He is, but I still love Van Johnson. I guess it's another one of those recurring themes we tend to find. John Carradine a moment ago, Van Johnson now. This is about a group of environmentalists in a tropical delta. And they discover that toxic waste is being dumped. And the water hides a giant crocodile. So this is a huge ripoff of Jaws from start to finish, including music. Is there any way to even overstate how much the B-movie ecosystem trafficked in these exploitation Jaws ripoffs? We really can't. We're going to come back to it a few times. I will say, I think Van Johnson seems really into his performance. And then, talking about influences, I think Anaconda turned around and ripped off this entire movie later. The one thing I love with this dubbing is hearing those same voice actors that I know from MST3K and Dario Argento movies. But this is pretty ridiculous. Unfortunately, the giant crocodile eats a cool doggy, which I have a problem with. And there is a ridiculous rescue from a pier of a little girl that has to be seen to be believed. One of the things I do like about this stuff that makes it so regional, which you know that I completely enjoy, there were always the obvious budget considerations. And one of the more obvious ways they handled that are the more manageable logistics of filming in lakes and rivers versus on the open ocean. So we get this wildlife that we don't usually get as opposed to sharks in Jaws. We get the croc, which is so great. I love the crocodile point of view shots with his heavy breathing on the soundtrack. And that title scene jump scare is amazing when he roars up out of the water and blasts killer crocodile right across the screen in huge yellow letters. Incredible. The other obvious lesson here, I guess, is that even in the most undesirable and remote backwaters, there are still somehow shitty developers and politicians looking to exploit that somehow. Yeah, what are they really trying to cover up here and what money is there to be gained? I think they're all murderers as well and they're hiding, whatever. I'm not going to try to parse this out, but I still recommend watching it. Is all of that just meta reference to all the mob money that they're moving through these things? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> so what next? Next, you couldn't get any more close to Jaws than Claws from 1977. And that's directed by Richard Bosbach and Robert E. Pearson. And it stars Jason Evers, Leon Ames, and Anthony Caruso. And it's about some hunters that wound a grizzly bear in a national forest in Alaska. And soon after, the wounded bear goes on a rampage. First things first, hello stock footage. How much of this movie is stock footage? It's pretty cool stock footage, That's though. True. The Alaskan stuff. By the third bulletin that goes out over the air about this bear, they are referring to it as a devil bear. Not a bear that might have a legitimate beef. I really think that's a little unfair. And I know we keep referencing Jaws already, but so do these movies, even to the point where this one has two kids dressed up like a bear that almost gets shot, just like in Jaws. Highlights here, 
The editing of any scene with more than two people in it is completely baffling. I love to try to figure all that out. But the best thing about this whole thing is the surprise bear bit every time. Hands down, this bear has the greatest sense of comic timing in history. Every attack comes from out of nowhere. It's the funniest thing I've ever seen. Every attack is like the bear equivalent of someone getting swept off the stage at the Apollo Theater. Always from stage left. Sometimes in slow-mo. And there are flashbacks upon flashbacks upon flashbacks. Every single character has one, and some of them have multiple flashbacks. Leon Ames, though, great silver fox in here. Glad to see him. And I love that Jason Evers, who is one of the most committed actors I have ever seen, is the divorced father slash hunter with a grudge. He clearly does not know what he is doing. And he covers it up by just being mad and pissy all the time. In the fifth slot here, we actually have a regular episode, A Dark Song from 2016. So if you want to hear what we have to say about that and you haven't listened already, there's a whole episode, number 141, where we go into great detail. So it comes back to me with The Omega Man from 1971, directed by Boris Segal, with Charlton Heston, Anthony Zerby, and Rosalind Cash. It's about Robert Neville, who is the lone survivor of a plague, and he's trying to create a cure because most of the human race has been wiped out. But there is this savage death cult that's been formed, and he also has to fight them. Now, I have to say, I just don't really enjoy this movie. I love the cast. Anthony Zerby, one of my favorites. Rosalind Cash, awesome. But it's Charlton Heston. He is practically unwatchable. He makes everything feel sweaty and greasy and not in a good way. Do you even feel that way about Planet of the Apes? Yes, I do. I do like the funky tone of this, though. But really, this was kind of a lower point for me. Well, that funky tone is captured literally from the very first seconds because we kicked things off right with some 8-track cruising around town. Did you have an 8-track player when you were a kid? Nope. Well, you missed out because there's nothing like between programs 3 and 4 where it cuts your favorite song in two pieces. <laughs> we just had AM radio. Another thing that I'm always impressed with when they can make these huge sections of large cities look so vacant... And going back to the beginning before I get, we also really get a rare Warner Brothers logo here at the beginning of this one. The Kenny Leisure Service era logo, which only lasted for about four years. I think the first time it was used was in Dirty Harry. You didn't see it very much, so it was kind of a nice little throwback to catch that. But I totally agree with you about the lead. Charlton Heston's macho energy bullshit has never worked for me. His skills and his intensity never add up to authority in any way. If I met him in a post-apocalyptic wasteland, I'd probably just listen to his spiel and then say, all right, good luck with that, buddy. You go that way, I'm going this way. I'd probably join Anthony Zerby's cult first. <laughs> I do prefer The Last Man on Earth to all the other adaptations of this story. But you're right on the money about the funkiness because this score, I love this score. It's such a great mix of 70s strings and then this funk, easy listening crossover. That music is by Ron Grainer, by the way, who did the music for one of your favorites, The Moonspinners. Oh, okay, cool. And he also did that classic Doctor Who theme with Delia Derbyshire. Oh, interesting. One thing I did think about watching this that I wanted to ask you about, would you have the skills to survive, even something as simple as 
you go into the weapons store to scrounge, would you be able to match the ammunition to the gun that you're taking? Absolutely not. And I've already lost my Swiss Army knife, so... (laughs) Well, I'm with you. I think we both come down on the same place with this one. I like the overall vibe. I just wish it was anyone else in the lead, even Burt Lancaster. Yeah, Imagine if it were Burt Reynolds, for example, how much more fascinating and fun that would be. So speaking of ridiculousness, what about your next choice? In the number seven slot, we have the Massage Parlor Murders from 1973, and that's directed by Chester Fox and Alex Stevens, starring George Spencer, Sandra Peabody, John Moser, Brother Theodore, and George Zunza. Apparently, I'm on a roll here picking two movies in a row that take two people to make something this dodgy. It is Grindhouse from start to finish. There's even an exclamation mark in the title. Yeah, I think that exclamation point might be trying a little too hard. They also spell film incorrectly in the opening credits (laughs) as phlegm. We do have a Brother Theodore sighting, though, so that offsets a few of those things. And George Zunza is not only in it, he's the AD. I think this really delivers the exploitation goods in a very specific way. We have nudity within seconds. There are cops receiving sexual favors. This grubbiness, it just makes the murders feel worse, which is an effectiveness of a sort, though maybe not an intentional one. And speaking of grubbiness, we would be remiss if we did not mention the indoor swimming pool orgy and the fact that we are grateful that this movie doesn't come with an odorama scratch and sniff card like John Waters' Polyester. They make the cardinal mistake that we've pointed out several times. They include posters and marquees for better movies <laughs> constantly. And this whole pattern that they've created of the seven sins being the basis for the murders, based on names, it is a huge stretch. I cannot explain it. And how the guy at the end catches on fire is still a mystery. But maybe I'm giving you too much of an incentive to watch this. Oh, and also, the music never stops. (laughs) Well, I think you redeem us a little bit with your next choice. What do you have next? I sure do. The great Motel Hell from 1980, directed by Kevin Connor, with Rory Calhoun, again, a throwback from the past, Paul Link, Nancy Parsons, and Nina Axelrod. And the Wolfman Jack sighting happens in this. This is about a seemingly friendly farmer and his sister who kidnap unsuspecting travelers and bury them alive in order to create the special meat that they are famous for. This is so fun. It's super gross. It is dark. It's got an incredible sense of humor. I loved it. There's a crazy twist with the marriage. I love the actress who plays Ida, the sister. She has the best face and smile, and Rory Calhoun is incredibly convincing. I wanted there to be a different ending. I liked these characters so much. This is very much at the top of the list in terms of coming home from school in the 80s and catching something on TV in those early days of cable. Motel Hell was in constant rotation, it felt like. I have seen this movie a dozen times, probably. But at 10, I don't think I got how much the camp factor was ramped up. But going back now, it's great to see. And speaking of understanding more now that we revisit it, I am astounded, I think, at someone with Rory Calhoun's pedigree doing this. Because it's easy to forget how, in the 80s, a lot of people hated horror. 
It was not a mainstream thing to do. It didn't have wide popular acceptance. Roger Ebert, for instance, railed against it all the time. It was definitely not a move you made to rekindle a career back then. He was in this. He was in a couple of those Angel movies. He was in Hell Comes to Frogtown with Rowdy Roddy Piper. More power to him, I say. I'm super glad to see him taking those risks, and they really were then, for such a great payoff, because he is fantastic in this. And those gurgling noises from those buried victims, they still creep me out just like they did back in 1980. And I think we keep the quality level up, at least for me a little bit here, with my next choice, The Toolbox Murders from 1978. And that's directed by Dennis Donnelly and stars Cameron Mitchell, Pamela Ferdin, and Wesley Yur. Don't forget about Anita Corso from The Andy Griffith Show. That's true. I have a special mention for her at the end. And this definitely does what it says on the tin. A ski-masked maniac kills apartment complex tenants with the contents of his toolbox. That's a huge toolbox. You can fit a whole lot of murder in that thing. And when he picks out the hammer, it's bad enough. But then he takes that moment to turn it around to use the claw end. This is the first one on the list that really gets grim, I think, out of what we've done so far. Everything that came before had a layer of something between you and the evil. Silliness, amateurishness, animals with a finely honed sense of revenge. But this removes any of those comforts. It's scary. This feels like prime Southern California serial killer territory that we could have literally read about. Right. I was thinking Golden State Killer, for instance, or even actual toolbox murderers like Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris. Do not Google the audio tape related with their case if you ever want to have a chance of enjoying your life ever again. It will change you forever if you listen to that. Oh, God. Okay. Good to know. Cameron Mitchell, on the other hand... He's a delight in this weird way. He's always a delight. I put him up there with Wings Hauser for me. You know, I'm a huge fan. He's not magnetic in the same way, but he never phones it in. Can you imagine what the girl was thinking as he's singing to her on the bed or eating that lollipop? No, I can't. Thanks. But I did have a question for you along those lines. Since this is the first one that gets kind of dark this way... Does it feel gratuitous? Because it is more violent than anything we have seen in a real-world way so far. That's an interesting question, and this one I actually watched by myself, which is odd for us. And I remember feeling really involved with it. But no, I still wouldn't say gratuitous. I feel like there's some component that you have to understand or recognize as being a possibility in the real world, and you need to pay attention. Maybe it's a little gratuitous is where I come down. Okay, probably. that's the whole point of exploitation, or at least one of the main points of exploitation. The most gratuitous thing in it for me, actually, is the red herring that isn't. Other pluses, the music really works for me in this. I am loving this smooth 70s country. And coming back to Anita Corso, the downside, Helen Crump is still a huge pain in the ass. (laughs) Whatever. What about you? What do you have next? Well, I keep the quality going. Death Race 2000 from 1975, directed by Paul Bartel, who we saw show up in Piranha, with David Carradine, Sylvester Stallone, and Simone Griffith. And I can't go through the entirety of the wonderful cast, but I also want to mention Mary Warrenoff and the real Don Steele. 
Boy, what a great drive-in movie. This is all about in the dystopian future, there's a cross-country automobile race that requires contestants to run down innocent pedestrians to gain points. Now, there's a whole lot of Corman and Associates on your list, it seems like. Was that intentional or did it just work out that way? It seemed like it just worked out that way, and I'm so glad. And at this point, I'm only now recognizing how much I actually grew up with Mary Warrenoff and Paul oh, yeah. Bartell that didn't occur to me when I was a kid. By the way, Tak Fujimoto is the director of photography here. And this does not ever with repeated viewing, lose its bite or its wit or its point of view, and it is so well acted by everyone from high camp to satire to total realism. Well, I think with this in Motel Hell, you made two great choices in a row in terms of camp that is pitched just right. This is some beautiful Paul Bartel over-the-top satire here. I love his sense of humor. I wish we had a million movies from him. And one of the things that I think we don't talk about very much with this movie, we talk about the carnage, but I love the way that we imagined the future to be in the 70s. It remains utterly charming to me, even when it is completely over the top this way. And when it comes down to it, these driver fan groups as political factions with swastikas all over, maybe he had more of a crystal ball than we thought in the first place. You mentioned Mary Warrenoff as Calamity Jane. I love her so much. Anytime she pops up, they should have been one of the great power couples in cinema history. And like you say, timeless. This falls under that category of, I will sit down and watch it to the end every time I happen upon it when it comes on. Well, now we're back to your choice, and I have big questions about the creation <laughs> of this one. And I think possibly it was meant to be punishment of some kind. At the very least, a trap. And you fell right into it. The next one is The Zodiac Killer from 1971, and that is directed by Tom Hansen, and it stars Hal Reed, Bob Jones, and Ray Lynch, and I've never heard a cast that looks so much like their names. It's ostensibly about the Zodiac Killer menacing the Bay Area. One interesting note, personally at least for me, that came out of this, I realized that the real-life Paul Avery, the San Francisco journalist, he received the letter from the actual Zodiac Killer threatening his life on the actual day I was born, October 28th, 1970. Coincidence? It came in a Halloween card. It feels a little <laughs> eerie to think about. It does. I've got to say, this movie is just filled with what are the objectively ugliest people on earth, inside and out. It's a bunch of two-paid, leisure-suited, hateful lowlifes. It's unbelievable. Every character is incredibly repulsive. We should make clear, I guess, the murders as they're presented here have nothing to do with the actual Zodiac killings. And as you hinted, the backstory for this is more interesting than the movie itself. It was intended as much to be a trap to catch the Zodiac as it was to be entertainment. The director, who's a lunatic, I have to say, look him up, he's fascinating, he reasoned that as publicity conscious as the real Zodiac was, he wouldn't be able to resist coming to see this movie. And so, among other things, they did a motorcycle giveaway, and during the screenings, they would check contest entries against known Zodiac handwriting samples. And one guy on the team almost died waiting in a freezer in the theater to spring the trap on the real Zodiac. The plan, ultimately, was that when they caught him, they were going to film that tack that onto this existing movie and then use that as a springboard to riches and fame, and I guess we all know how that worked out. 
Well, I had zero expectations. Actually, no, I had negative expectations. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's somehow better and worse than I thought it would be. Let me give you some examples. The continuity, non-existent. The newspaper editor works inside of a printing press. They spell Chronicle wrong in the credits. (laughs) It should be called The Greasy Killer instead. The only likable character is that kid who answers the payphone after the Zodiac leaves, or that little kid who says he doesn't like the face of that one guy in the playground. Who does? That's it. Yeah, it's terrible. Well, fortunately, you come back with an absolute banger next. Definitely. Sleepaway Camp from 1983, directed by Robert Hiltzik with Felissa Rose, Jonathan Tierston, Kieran Fields, and Christopher Colet. It's about Angela Baker, who is a shy young girl, and she's sent to summer camp with her cousin, but murders start to happen shortly after her arrival. So this comes off to me, and this was a first watch, sort of like a weird combination of incompetence, but maybe amateurishness, but with a sort of winking plan behind it all. I still really liked it. It is short shorts theater. It's half shirts theater. There's great effects. And really, it shows you that camp is nothing but a ton of scumbags from start to finish. Well, this is a classic. You've made some great choices here. This is worth it just for Aunt Martha every time. Yeah, great point. The conflicting message, though, that this is sending about sexuality, I believe their hearts were in the right place for most of it, but it was just a less enlightened time then. In addition to the LGBTQ stuff, The pedophile cook is gross, but he's completely laughed off like it's no big deal. There are teens banging old men that run the camp. Then there's just the one counselor's sleeveless tee short combos that you mentioned that leave nothing to the imagination. Yeah, plus the kind of fairly excessive reveal at the end when we're still talking about children. You think so? Fairly excessive? fairly excessive. Well, people were trying to figure a lot of things out, apparently, at least during this time, because you've got this, you've got Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker, you have Nightmare on Elm Street 2. So people are working through some issues about their sexuality on film, and it's really incredible to see all this sort of exploration of these themes, whether or not they handle it correctly, we can debate that forever. Yeah, and who's characters they put their words into it can be a little iffy sometimes and you say words it's more like shouts because there is so much yelling at this camp for some reason and it fits right in this is part one of a long island camp slasher double shot that you have for us bookending this stuff that i think are both great choices well you've got an all-time classic next yeah that's right Night of the Living Dead in Lucky Number 13 here from 1968, and that's directed by the fantastic George Romero, and it stars Dwayne Jones, Judith O'Day, and Carl Hardman. And it's about a group of people that barricade themselves in an old farmhouse to remain safe from bloodthirsty monsters that the culture would soon come to know as zombies. This is a landmark horror film, no doubt about it. This may be the most important choice on my list, and its importance should never be overlooked. It ushered in the modern age of horror as we know it, I think. It is a major linchpin, a watershed moment. It's that link between moody 60s horror sci-fi like Village of the Damned and then the explosion that we would soon see in the 70s. And this is one that 
I always seem to wait just the right amount of time in between watches that I'm really, really ready to see it again. Every time I come back to it, I'm hungry to see it. I do feel like even though I've seen it numerous times, I discover something new each time. I think it has the power to do that. Yeah, I don't exactly forget how good it is, but I'm always pleasantly surprised by it. And I think it goes without saying at this point, Dwayne Jones was a star from the word go. Yeah, I love him. He should have been much more appreciated in his lifetime. And I was thinking about he and Bill Gunn recently when we were talking about losing ground, and they both died just way too early. Yeah, this is a masterpiece of creepy mood, and it is special. Nothing else feels exactly like it. I'm glad that Criterion has put out a nice cleaned up version for posterity. But in my heart, I really like what a second or third generation VHS copy adds to this experience. Because I think this is meant to be watched on a smaller screen. Yeah, I think you should feel like you're in the farmhouse, too. Right. Late night theater, you're up and everybody else has gone to bed watching your little black and white TV. It's perfect for that. And the other thing that I don't want to forget when I'm talking about milestone experience here, the thing that I love to think about when I watch this movie is them basically working out the rules for a new type of monster. How often does anyone get to do that? Uh, with my next film. <laughs> and that's Lake Placid from 1999. The second in our giant crocodile movies. Directed by Steve Miner of Friday the 13th yep. fame. Written by David E. Kelly, which you are going to be able to feel yeah. that in the script. With Bridget Fonda, Bill Pullman, Oliver Platt, Brendan Gleeson, and Betty White. The scientists are on the track of a giant crocodile who is terrorizing residents in Black Lake, Maine. So this one is just plain fun. Even though that David E. Kelly dialogue gets on my nerves, Oliver Platt is so dang good. And Betty White is the original trash-talking grandma in this. The creature is great. I'm talking over-the-top, giant, great. And when you compare this to something like Twister, which we mentioned earlier, I would way prefer to watch this big old creature feature with actors I actually like. I think you're only reacting to Helen Hunt there, because Bill Paxton is in that, Philip Seymour Hoffman is in that. And he's awful. <laughs> he's terrible in it. But I'll give you Helen Hunt. Yeah, this was a first-time watch for me, and this was super fun. You're right. It's full of these character tropes that we recognize. We see them often in stuff like this, but what makes this different are the surprising casting choices. You get people turning up in this that you wouldn't necessarily expect to see, some of them playing against type, and you point out my two favorites. Oliver Platt and Betty White are just the best in this. I do want to say, one thing I am not keen on in cinephile culture is this whole everything and everyone is ripe for critical assessment, bollocks. This reminds me, definitely, that Bridget Fonda is exactly fine right where she is in our cultural estimation, in our collective memory, which is, eh, she's okay, I'm sure she's a nice enough person. But on the plus side, you get to see Natty Gann fly a helicopter. Exactly. Meredith Salinger should be in more stuff, I'm just saying. Okay, we've got another bright spot before I'm going to bring us back down again. <laughs> well, my number 15 here is The Fun House from 1981, and that's directed by Toby Hooper, Horror Luminary, and it stars Elizabeth Berridge, Sean Carson, and Jeannie Austin, and it's about four teenage friends that spend the night in a carnival fun house and are stalked by a deformed man in a Frankenstein mask. 
the dark ride is such a great tradition and the carnival is such a great setting. We just watched something wicked this way comes not too long ago. And this backdrop just has so much potential. Do you have a lot of experiences with dark rides? Have you gone on those at the carnival? I guess once or twice, but I really haven't done enough of them. I want to go on one right now. I'm not going to stay overnight in that thing <laughs> because I do think this is so scary as anything involving carnies rightly is. Well, there's a whole range of these non-franchise slashers that I think belong up there with the big names, maybe just below. And this is one of my favorites of those. And I had such a crush on Elizabeth Barrage in Amadeus, which is where I saw her first. I saw that before this. So you can imagine how excited I was to discover that she was a great, somewhat unsung final girl, too. This was such a great surprise for me. I adored this. And I think the whole film hangs on her performance. And she does not let anyone down. She's a young woman here. And you can feel her experiencing some thrills for the very first time. She just lights up from within when she does that. I wish, again, just like Meredith Salinger, I wish she had more roles now that she could shine in in that way. Well, speaking of not letting us down, what do you have next here? <laughs> oh, boy. We didn't plan it this way, but this is a Toby Hooper again. Yeah, back to back. I picked, I don't know why, Life Force from 1985, <laughs> because I swear to God, this movie is five hours long. You say that every time. I do, because it is. And it's with Steve Railsback, Matilda May, Peter Firth, Patrick Stewart, and Frank Finlay. Basically, every cool British person of that time is in this. It's about a race of space vampires who arrive in London and infect the populace beginning an apocalyptic descent into chaos. So every time I forget this is Toby Hooper and he would probably be glad of that as well. Are you also a little suckered in by the Canon Group logo? Do you feel like, oh, we're going to get something good here? Yeah, we're at least going to have fun, not five hours long worth of that. You keep saying that. It's not five hours long. It is excessively long. It's 30 minutes too long. I'm telling you. Well, you're right. There are a whole lot of Brits here, which I really enjoy even more every time I watch it, actually, because it gets more Quatermassy as it goes. Things that I would come to love, but a little cart before the horse for me in 1985. I didn't know how much these characters in these types of situations would figure in the horror I would come to enjoy. And you've got a Henry Mancini score, so it's not cheap. No, it's got good effects, too. At least I think so. Yeah. It reminds me a little bit of Disney's the Black Hole. I remember a huge promotional push for that movie when it came out, but this also includes space sex vampires, so take that, Maximilian Shell. And having seen a lot of his filmography now, was Steve Railsback ever not on a huge bunch of drugs? I guess. I do really like him. It seems like kind of it worked for him because he's just unhinged all the time. Well, yeah, basically this is the horror movie written by cocaine. It's hard to imagine him as an astronaut first. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> they gonna let charlie be an astronaut yeah everything else that comes after is completely believable well when talking about this or trying to describe this movie to someone just get comfortable with this phrase for reasons that are never fully explained and you said it's excessive but i think sometimes there just need to be monuments to excess which this definitely is i would still prefer that they were shorter and live near the water <laughs> Give me excessive space sexy vampires. I'll take an excess of those. Are you telling me Matilda May is not a perfect human being? Oh, yeah. She's amazing. 
It's then just too much of Peter Firth being incredibly intense for no reason. (laughs) Speaking of British intensity. Yeah, we've got number 17 here on the list. Haunted House of Horror from 1969. And that's directed by Michael Armstrong, starring Frankie Avalon, Jill Hayworth, and Dennis Price. And it's about a group of teenagers gathered in an old mansion who are being murdered one by one. And the survivors must discover who among them is the killer before he finishes everyone off. Speaking of Hamry, we've got good old Tony Tenser behind the scenes here. And by the way, Jill Hayworth was the original Sally Bowles. Right away, I like this. It's unassuming, and I completely unironically love the title song. This piece of music, nice little pop song, it never goes where you exactly expect it to. So it's keeping my ears on their toes. And the soundtrack as a whole is actually pretty good. It's not the typical overused cultural musical markers you usually see. Yeah, the pacing is different than your normal slasher. Yeah, it does take a little while to get going, and it does have two big draws. Do you want to be immersed in swinging London with all the attendant wardrobe and furnishings? And two, do you want to see teen idol Frankie Avalon get graphically stabbed directly in the crotch? Yes to all of those. I think I could pretty much watch a million different permutations of this kind of story and probably enjoy it every time. Well, it has a very specific audience, I think this does, because it's basically like a big, randy, bloody Scooby-Doo episode. So if that's in your wheelhouse, seek it out. It is, and this next one should be fun for all ages. (laughs) That's Blood Feast from 1963, directed by the great... Quotation marks, Herschel Gordon Lewis, with William Kerwin, Mal Arnold, and Connie Mason, an Egyptian caterer, (laughs) (laughs) I can't even continue, kills various women in suburban Miami to use their body parts to bring to life a dormant Egyptian goddess. At every level, with every actor, and every element of production, it is ridiculous and absurd and incompetent. There are no changes in camera angles, just panning. The makeup is absurd, including excessive tanning. The acting is so wooden. So thank you, Herschel Garden Lewis. Yeah, I unabashedly love this. No, I watched it multiple times afterwards just for fun. God bless Herschel Gordon Lewis for being the Renaissance man that he was. This film is the film equivalent of Florida Man. Basic. <laughs> yep. These cops, they are the community players level of teenage strangler. And I mean that with all the affection that I can muster. I love these guys like Lewis and Herc Harvey, who made Carnival of Souls, that are taking this kind of industrial educational film aesthetic and accidentally turning out minor masterpieces with it. Wait, just for a second, though. Carnival of Souls is actually wonderful. I think this is wonderful, too, because... Ugh. Okay. In a manner of speaking, at least, he invented Splatter as we know it. First ballot Hall of Famer just for that alone. Not even a question. Okay, good point. Our next choice was our regular episode, Halloween from 2018, so check out our full episode on that. That is number 142. And speaking of Splatter and milestone exploitation, my next choice is probably the heaviest one we have. That is I Spit on Your Grave from 1978. And that's directed by Meyer Zarki, and it stars Camille Keaton, Aaron Tabor, and Richard Pace. And it's about an aspiring writer who is repeatedly gang-raped, humiliated, and left for dead by four men 
whom she systematically hunts down to seek revenge. This one I kept putting off and putting off. I watched this one last, completely out of order, because I didn't know, do I want to do this to myself again? But I am glad I did, because this is a milestone exploitation title, and probably the one with the most intimidating reputation, maybe the apex of a certain type and era of exploitation, period. It was the one that I had avoided for years. I even started it once and stopped less than a minute in because I just knew I wasn't ready for it. So this is the first time full viewing for you. What was the experience like? Oh, God, I loved it just more than I thought that I would. There are so many points in its favor. The direction just keeps getting better as it goes. The performance just get better and better. I love the score, too. It's used so interestingly here. The only music is typically a harmonica or a record. And Camille Keaton is great. And there's one thing I didn't know I would appreciate here. I liked the revenge killings. Yeah, you bring up two things that are my favorites, too. I love Camille Keaton in anything. She seems like the kind of person that I would like to know. Just beyond acting, she seems like a human being that I would enjoy interacting with. And it makes her so much more sympathetic than the average protagonist in this kind of film. But one thing that I wanted to ask, does the violation have to be this extreme to then validate how extreme the revenge is? If this happened off screen, for instance, and you only heard it described, could you as easily justify what you then see her do? Don't ask me that question today in 2020. <laughs> right. I probably have a different answer for you. I'm okay with all of it. Yeah, these guys are unrepentant scumbags. Truly. And this is provoking in a fascinating way that continues to have relevance, sadly. We should say it's not going to be for everyone. Be careful. This one takes no prisoners. It is brutal and violent and provocative, like you say, the entire time. I don't know that this could be made anymore. And it was remade a few years back. I haven't seen that. I have, and it didn't feel the same. Got it. And I do think with this one, you have to decide maybe you're not ready on the day. And I do, going back to Camille Keaton, want to point out, I think this is an incredibly daring and vulnerable performance that she puts on. And I don't know how you couldn't be infuriated by the stupid and repulsive things that these guys say to justify their actions. Now, you mentioned the kills. Did you have a particular favorite? The hanging, the bathtub scene, or were you just in a red mist the whole time? I probably was in a red mist. I think I'm still in a red mist. <laughs> Let's move on, maybe. Okay. Well, we followed that tour de force with something several rungs down the ladder, <laughs> and that is Demons from 1985, directed by Lamberto Bava, with Urbano Barberini, Natasha Hovey, and Carl Zinni, about a group of random people who are invited to a screening of a mysterious movie, which should be yay, but they find themselves trapped in the theater with ravenous demons, and it is not very fun. The movie, I mean. There is lots and lots of goo coming out of the demons, which was cool. There is a scalping, which is super duper gross. There is throat slitting, which is also not fun. And there is the most moronic female lead who thankfully gets killed in the end. Well, the first thing I noticed with this, with all the record store experience and everything, is that the music licensing had to be such a huge part of this budget. You've got Billy Idol, Accept, Motley Crue, Rick Springfield, Go West, Saxon. 
That's a lot of money to spend on music. You know they stole every single one of those. <laughs> There's no way they license that stuff. Well, I'm so glad that I get to say this at least once every Halloween season. I love these Italians. No one can top the Italians at making something that feels like they were just making it up on that day as they went along and just putting it on film. And I always, always enjoy this theme of mayhem in the movie theater. That's such a fun conceit for me, like popcorn or fade to black to a lesser extent. And this is one of the most over the top as far as that goes. But another of your choices coming up actually has one of my all-time favorite movie theater deaths in it. I can't wait to get to that one. We did learn something fun, though. The whole Demon's Canon saga is pretty interesting. You should look that up. We're back in fun territory again with your next one. Yeah, we're at number 22 here. And I have in that spot Invasion of the B-Girls from 1973, directed by Dennis Sanders, starring Lantern favorite William Smith, Anitra Ford, Victoria Vetri, and Cliff Osmond. And it's about a powerful cosmic force that is turning Earth women into queen bees who kill men by wearing them out sexually. I have to say, this is one of the greatest exploitation premises ever written. Hell, yes it is. And I love to see William Smith bouncing all over the place trying to solve this problem. It's so fun. This begins, speaking of exploitation, with some naked dirt bike riding, so you have my attention. And I have to ask, just considering the situation we've been in for months now, wouldn't we all just be better off if we were facing a pandemic of sexual exhaustion? Let's get some herd immunity going here. Yeah, it is so free-spirited. It's as fun and subversive as I remember from the first time I watched it. I think this is a really awesomely realized film. Well, I said it's maybe the perfect exploitation premise, but do you think it really completely delivers? Does it execute everything okay for you? I do, because I think it gives you so much more than you thought you were going to get. I guess so, but then I'm selfish, maybe, because I think I want it to be even more over the top and outrageous than it actually is. I still had a fun time watching it, don't get me wrong. It's actually really entertaining. I think I just wanted to turn everything up to 11. Yeah, it was still 1973, so I think it was going to end in a little bit more of a positive note than, say, if it were 1978. Uh, good point. What do you have moving us a few years into the future from there? I'm about to blow your mind with From Beyond from 1986, directed by Stuart Gordon, written by H.P. Lovecraft, at least that was the source material, and it has Jeffrey Combs, Barbara Crampton, Ted Sorrell, and Ken Forey, all huge favorites. A group of scientists have developed the Resonator, a machine which allows whoever is within range to see beyond normal perceptible reality. So I love the visual design in this. The colors are amazing. The Blu-ray looks amazing. I love these big tuning forks that are used in the Resonator, and it's always fun to see Barbara Crampton, obviously, the creature design is wonderful, Pretorius with all his shoulder and back hair. And I realize this is the same year as Chopping Mall, which is really fun. Barbara Crampton in that as well. By the way, did you know Jeffrey Combs has been in eight H.P. Lovecraft adaptations? I did, as a matter of fact. I just hated it that Crawford, the character, turned into something he didn't want to be. That just upsets me. You go messing with those forces, you spin the wheel. 
I love, though, like you say, with this production design, that they're basically able to do all of this multi-dimensional grotesquerie by essentially harnessing the power of a Commodore 64 and a few gadgets from Spencer's Gifts. It's got maybe my biggest all-time horror crush, or just crush, period, of all, Barbara Crampton forever. She's probably tied at the top spot with Pamela Franklin, and that is some stiff competition. Now, when it comes to Lovecraftian on land, at least, I typically think of dusty and scaly, but this conception of everything, it confounds my expectations. It's so nice and juicy and gooey. This kind of thing isn't typically in your wheelhouse, so you enjoyed that part of it? I did. And I totally agree with you about Stuart Gordon, Barbara Crampton, Jeffrey Combs, Ken Foray. This is like visiting old friends. That feeling always makes this one fun to come back to. So your next one, I've actually seen this a few times, surprisingly. Speaking of in your wheelhouse, this is right in that genre that you love maybe more than any other. For my next choice, I have Monster on the Campus from 1958, and that's directed by Jack Arnold, and it stars Arthur Franz, Joanna Moore, and Judson Pratt. And it's about a research professor that uses the blood of a primitive fish exposed to gamma rays to regress to an ape-like, bloodthirsty, prehistoric hominid. A throwback as we're told many times. Of course, Whit Bissell is in this, so if you've ever seen any movie from this time period, you will recognize Whit Bissell. Now, this is the oldest movie on our list this year, and it was made literally during the peak year for drive-ins in the United States. In 1958, there were over 4,000 drive-ins in operation that year. And let's talk track record here for a minute while we're at it. Jack Arnold, he made some of the greatest science fiction films of the golden era, including one of my all-time favorites, The Creature from the Black Lagoon, and he made one of your favorite industrial shorts, The Chicken of Tomorrow. I keep wanting to do the MST3K jokes when I hear that title, so I'll just have to stay silent over here. But I forget how generally sexist this is. The first words of the film literally set the tone for that. And Arthur Franz played other sexist jerks in other movies. You might recognize his face. But this is still pretty cool. The coelacant is awesome in this. What's upsetting is that lovesick assistant, she gets murdered right away in a really humiliating way. So I think there's a lot to examine here. Yeah, it's really polarizing. There are a lot of great things about it. And then some not so great things, like you mentioned. I just love the overall vibe because it's actually a well-made and well-modulated old school monster movie in that way. It's not as silly as the title might suggest, for instance. And we have one of your favorite themes of all time, atomic age fears of science run amok. What can't gamma rays do? P.S. I've been reading nothing but Chernobyl books for the last two weeks, so I have a horrifying answer to that rhetorical yeah, question. they can do a lot. And even with that mistreatment, there are still some really effective horror touches. That hanged girl, that assistant that you brought up, when we encounter her dead, she is hung with her eyes wide open and staring unrelentingly forward. It is still shocking and unnerving today. And then you've got some classic Jekyll and Hyde, Wolfman time-lapse transformation that's great, but with the added gimmick of setting up devices to record it all. So pretty cool and scientific. So what do you have next after that? I'm going to take us to Long Island, as you had mentioned earlier. That was my Long Island accent, but not a very good one. Sorry. We'll forget that ever happened. I chose The Burning from 1981, directed by Tony Malum, with 
Ryan Matthews, Leah Ayers, Brian Backer, and then everyone you have ever heard of, Jason Alexander, Ned Eisenberg, Fisher Stevens, Holly Hunter, and so many more. It's about a former summer camp caretaker, that's Cropsy, who was horribly burned from a prank gone wrong, and then decides to come back to a New York summer camp bent on killing the teenagers responsible for his disfigurement. So this reads like a revenge fantasy from top to bottom. Every person wants revenge on every other person. And the gore is really done well, which is no surprise because it's Tom Savini. I think every single character in this is abused somehow. And that sort of makes sense when you realize the original story was by Harvey Weinstein. Ooh, let's all grab our collars. But this is pretty darn fun. But yeah, Jason Alexander is the most annoying theater kid ever. Yeah, this is the other great Long Island early 80s slasher that I was mentioning. And who doesn't want to see a bunch of New York actors get horribly murdered? And this one does have the benefit of a great real-life urban legend for its basis. I always like that as a starting point. I am still baffled a little bit by one of the girls playing softball in what is clearly her underwear... But along with the Funhouse, this is another one of those top-tier standalone entries in the annals of slasherdom. And those, I'm really glad that they never got a franchise. I really enjoy that they were one and done, and they stand as this little, crystallized, perfect representation of what was happening then, rather than be milked and milked for a series of diminishing returns. And speaking of diminishing, this also has to be the gold standard in horror for the most teens with receding hairlines. I love to see that creep glazer get it, too, while I'm thinking of it. Yep. So your next choice, do you think this one was Diminishing Returns? No, I don't. But when I stack it up against the other example that we have of this type of film, I think it's lesser, and I will explain. Because what I have next is Grizzly from 1976, and that's directed by William Girdler, and it stars Christopher George, Andrew Prine, and Richard Jekyll, and it's about an 18-foot-tall grizzly bear that terrorizes a state park, leaving it up to a park ranger to save the day. Now, we love our Nature Strikes Back stories, obviously. We have another Jaws on Land ripoff, and I think we are supposed to like Grizzly better than Claws. It's got a bigger budget, name stars, a better bear, but I can't help liking Claws, the ripoff of the ripoff, a little more. I'm with you, and I do still like this one, even though consistently it's saying, no, this is not Jaws. This is not the actual Jaws music. This is not the mayor from Jaws. This denim sidekick is not Richard Dreyfus. Nothing to see here. Instead of the mayor, you basically have Barry Goldwater, lodge manager. Pretty much. I believe you said this best. This is the only environmental warning film with an overture. Yeah, let's talk about this music. It really is a good score, relatively. How did they have such elaborate scores for all of these mid-tier to low-tier movies that they were turning out for 40 or 50 years in the studio system. I think it's really fascinating when you look at movies like this, they were clearly kind of family affairs or at least direct partnerships where people wore a whole lot of hats. And so I don't know if somebody was just in with the studio, if it was a studio offshoot, if it was just, hey, here's your orchestra manager, you've got to churn out 50 arrangements today and they just knew how to do it? I don't know. 
Yeah, when I think of how many forgettable movies, quote-unquote, that we know where a composer and an orchestra were obviously hired and used, there are thousands of them. I would really love a podcast dedicated to exploring this phenomenon. I would listen to that all the time. Speak for yourself. I would rather stick with our podcast to talk about Christopher George's double take at the end of this, which is more like a one-eighth take. He sort of vaguely raises one eyebrow when he sees the 18-foot bear right in front of him. I would probably give a little bit bigger reaction than that because this bear is knocking off body parts left and right. While I'm thinking about it, how much of Richard Jekyll's bear lore do you think is factual? 0.0%. Negative 100%. Yeah, I haven't invested enough time to look it up, but I thought, eh, sounds true. Yeah, okay, we'll go with it. And this bear, again, just like the bear in Claws, he's just doing what a bear does. Give a bear a break. What do you have next for us? This was a first watch for me, and I liked it so much more than I expected. This was The Blob, the 1988 version, directed by Chuck Russell with Kevin Dillon, Shawnee Smith, Donovan Leach, Jeffrey DeMunn, Joe Seneca, and Del Close, of all people. It's that familiar blob story. There's a deadly entity that has fallen from space, crashing in a small town, and it starts to consume everything in its path. So the title doesn't refer to Kevin Dillon's wig. No, and credit Shawnee Smith for having to act against that thing. That is no small feat. I was just really surprised at how good and engaging this is. The effects are good. The pacing is good. Joe Seneca gets to play against type as a shady government bad guy scientist. Yeah, I really feel like this is the overlooked leg of a late 80s trio of great gross body horror movies, the others being The Fly and The Thing. You mentioned there are tons of fantastic practical effects. There's not CGI everywhere, so that's so fun to see. There's a Jack Nance sighting, which always is fun. And that old Chekhovian saw, if you introduce a snowmaking machine in the first act, you've got to use it in the third act. But this is the one that I was referring to earlier that should be enshrined in cinema history if for no other reason than it has one of the all-time great movie talker punishments. When that guy who will not shut up in the theater gets blobbed. It's the best. And you mentioned Shawnee Smith. I am a fan of her just from her horror con appearances. Does she seem like the biggest sweetheart in the whole yeah. world? Is that just me? No, it's not just you. I think I like her maybe even more from that than her actual body of work because she seems like such a sweet person who is totally open about the process of making these movies. And she's just approachable and warm and funny and insightful. If you are at a horror con and she is on any panel, go to that thing because you will really enjoy it. When is she going to do a summer school panel? That's what I want to see. <laughs> Well, shit's about to get real with your next one. Yeah, this is kind of the odd one out, it feels like. And it was such a pleasant surprise. Rituals from 1977. And that's directed by Peter Carter. And it stars Hal Holbrook, Lawrence Dane, and Robin Gamel. And it's about five doctors on a wilderness outing who are stalked by disfigured, crazed killers. Now, this is backwoods survivalist horror, kind of in the same family as Deliverance. You show up, though, for the exploitation, and you get so much more. Do you feel like Blair Witch was influenced by this? Ah, that's a good point. Now that you say that, I definitely can draw a line from one to the other. Throw in some Van Diemen's Land in there, too. Yeah, there is a lot going on here about ambition, 
medical ethics, malpractice, karmic redemption around all those things. It also features some terry cloth hats that must have been four for a dollar. I mean, there are comments on Vietnam and alcohol, drug usage, the dynamics and relationships, how everything can fall apart really fast. Yeah, this cast, they take extremely strong material and then just further elevate it. Hal Holbrook is obviously no slouch, but then you also have players like Gary Reinecke. Canada's Frederick Forrest is how I think of him. He's fantastic in this too. The only false note in the whole thing for me, toward the beginning, one of the characters minimizes, kind of downplays, Black Fly season. If you have ever been in the Maine woods at the height of Black Fly season, you know that that is no laughing matter. But while they're out there in the woods, whooping it up, they get something's attention. They brought this upon themselves with their arrogance and their silly display. And it is grueling and painful from that point on. It is unrelenting. Degrading, I would almost say. And really, this is the fate I had wished on the characters in Old Joy. (laughs) We've got a big departure here. We're actually looking into kid relationships with the next film, and that was The Gate from 1987, directed by Tibor Takash with Stephen Dorff, Krista Denton, and Louis Tripp. It's about kids who unleash a horde of malevolent demons from a mysterious hole in their suburban backyard. Well, there is a lot going on here. It's pretty sad when you look at Terry's situation, the death of Angus, the transitions that the kids and the teens are going through. And by the way, speaking of Terry, the movie does not give that kid a break. I don't know what the movie has against that kid. In the end, though, Love saves the day, which is pretty neat. Well, much like the aforementioned Something Wicked This Way comes, this has so much great spooky kid atmosphere, specifically focusing on those things that your imagination makes you see in the everyday objects in your room, monsters under the bed. There's a treehouse, which is always something I relate to in any movie because my friend Brandon and I, we built one together when we were kids, and it was the coolest. We worked on it constantly, changing things, adding things. It was like the Winchester house of treehouses. And there's a theme here that I think you really love too, the horror that lies beneath suburbia, like Poltergeist, Nightmare on Elm Street, The Burbs, one of your favorites. I really like the geology angle too, because it appeals directly to kids' predisposition for stuff like dinosaurs, flags, encyclopedias, information and input-hungry kids. Space rocket kind of stuff. Yeah. And this is the second occurrence on the list of fun creatures in the Harryhausen mold. Definitely good design here. I love, love, love this detail too, that they're playing a version of light as a feather, stiff as a board. I wish more scary movies did that instead of trotting out the old Ouija board. I love a good Ouija board scene, but it's overused. This, however, you never get to see enough of it. I think the craft is the only other thing I can think of that has it. And then it just does a good job of working in a lot of normal kid stuff. And at the end, I really like the notion that kids win because they believe in the things that adults would scoff at and not take seriously. You're hitting kids right where they live with that message. Only you can fix this specifically because you're a kid. You have powers that adults don't have because of that. And now you're just going to go and grease it all up with the next (laughs) choice. Because that choice is Drive-In Massacre from 1976, directed by Stu Siegel, starring John F. Goff, Steve Vincent, Douglas Goodbye, and Robert E. Pearson pops up again. 
And it's about two police detectives trying to catch a serial killer who is stalking a rural California drive-in theater, randomly killing people with a sword. Now, I picked this because I thought we have to have at least one drive-in related title on here. So I put this in the anchor spot, but I don't know that it's up to the challenge. Why do you say that? It has beautiful dialogue like, Van Heusen thinks I married this toilet. And they're all just zits with long hair. And all you do around here is jerk off. And you shit heel, which is repeated in an auditory flashback for no reason. I thought those were the high points. They are. <laughs> well, this also has a classic case of, I know a guy for the soundtrack. On the order of Psychotronic Man, the theater manager, this guy that you're talking about delivering all these lines, as a guy with no hair, let me tell you something. There is a certain subset of us that match that razor shaved head with the beard because they think it's intimidating and it makes them look tough. This is that guy. But that's Robert Pearson also, who directed Claws, so he can't be all bad. That's a good point. Now, explain to me, are the two detectives in this literally twins? Because I could not tell them apart. I don't think that they actually are. And their set looks like the Barney Miller set. I guess that was just all random happenstance. They're working with a tenth of the budget of Barney Miller here. <laughs> I do like that the drive-in is memorialized as a makeout spot. There's one in the plus column. It does open with a great, ridiculous decapitation as a guy is reaching for the speaker... You've got the couple having an affair in the car at one point. She's pregnant. He wants out. He's still married. This drive-in is a regular Peyton place. But you're right. The cops in these movies, they are something special. I don't know where they get these guys from. Are they actual cops, do you think, in some cases? Could be. I hope not. Ironically, the only one for our experiment that has drive-in in the title, okay, I admit, it turns out it's a dud. This is the kind of movie that one minute I was watching it, the next minute I was looking at some birds outside the window. <laughs> they do get one thing right. It's only 74 minutes long. Yeah, thank God. It would have been better, I think, if we could have seen it at the drive-in, at least for that final gimmick of the frame stopping and they announce over the loudspeakers that the killer is loose and the police are on their way. That's fine, as long as it's not these police. Yeah, I assume that that was real life. I do believe, probably if we look back at it again, the Golden State Killer is running around in there somewhere. Okay, well, you seem to be talking an awful lot of trash for somebody who chose the final film on the list. Yeah, that's Barracuda from 1978. Not the heart story. It is directed by Harry Kerwin and Wayne Crawford, and you will see their names pop up a million times in the course of the film because they're also in it, they wrote it, they produced it. They did everything, I'm sure. So you're saying it's a real passion project. Yes, clearly. It also stars Jason Evers. Thank you. I love him. And Roberta Layton. And it is about a little coastal town that's being terrorized by deadly barracudas. But that's only part of the story. When it should be all of the story. Yeah, I liked this one. It had good music and good underwater footage, and then you had to go and ruin it by looking up terrifying barracuda facts. Thank you. But yes, the dialogue and the characters are not great. The lead actor does have a great head of hair, so that is a big positive. So they should just cast Lindsay Buckingham and everything? Oh my god. I just got <laughs> tingly. Thank you. Yeah, especially with the first attack. 
they get attacked in the butt, which is pretty fun. The score, though, then becomes complete overkill and is nearly constant. I do think at the end, because the plot is so dark, even though it's not great, it is better than it has any right to be. And the ending is actually satisfying. Okay, you just keep thinking that. Okay. (laughs) Watch it and tell me what you think. Curiously subtitled, The Lucifer Project. It sounds like it's going to be more than your boilerplate Jaws ripoff, and the resolution of it, though, is that classic Erica Long, yes and no. So maybe that's why you like it so much. (laughs) Probably. Because the further we get away from what they're ripping off, the seams start to show we get the diminishing returns. There are always these developers. There are always these ecologists. This one does exceed in one characteristic, though, where all of the others cannot hope to match up. This has to win the award for the movie on our list with the highest number of stained ceiling tiles, period. I feel like they're just trying to do too much. Pare it down. Get to the Barracudas. It's the title. It's why we came. No one watches these movies for riveting debate between chemical company executives and ecologists. Speak for yourself once <laughs> again. Jeez. It really does become more of an investigative thriller, like if Jaws had been about Brody and Hooper reading a lot of files. I just rolled my eyes at that one. Yeah, I could hear it over the microphone. <laughs> these last two movies, I think you would freely admit, though, your choice and my choice, were kind of the cool down period of our exercise program. Yeah, I think you're right. Well, now that we've gotten through all 31 there, as we often do, we see themes develop. There are standouts that might not be expected. What were those for you this time? I love seeing the recurring actors in different pieces. I mentioned Jason Evers. And then seeing those actors from yesteryear that I'd always loved. Our Silver Foxes, Leon Ames, and so on. Well, I think obviously the rural menace, nature strikes back thing is obviously all over this. And it's a super fun thing to experience in the safety of your car where none of those things can get to you. Well, we get to see some interesting takes on sex, as you would expect from an exploitation genre. Speaking of sex, we have these doughy, brill-creamed, unmotivated detectives that keep showing up in these time and time again. And they're incredible. That golden period when the Italians discovered Jerry Curl and everybody had it on. So what about standout titles? Did any of these rise above the others in a way that you didn't expect? The big fun spots for me, speaking of, the fun house, that was such a great discovery. And then I think just going back again to Death Race 2000 and then never wanting to stop watching Claws. I want to watch that every week. I think rituals had to be the cream of the crop for me. There is so much there to chew on, such great performances, and all without sacrificing any of the tension or horror. I think that was maybe a little too much for this endeavor. It belongs in a category all its own. And then for me, the toolbox murders would probably be the runner-up, an appropriately grim movie for the grim time we are in, or at least that I am in. The stakes surrounding everything feel so high right now that To go for anything lighter just feels frivolous to me. This was so grounded and so dirty and so real. I felt like I might have needed that in some way or another. I think maybe that's what I was expressing too with I spit on your grave. I do have hope for the future though. I don't want it to be a big downer here at the end. And that's why we are already laying out some super fun plans for next year's slate. I think we have a theme that we're both equally excited about. I can't wait to get there. Yeah, we're not doing all apocalyptic stuff, so we're trying to brighten it up a little bit. And that brings us to the end of episode 143, another Coloween in the books. 
I had a super good time. Thank you to you. Thank you for Joe Bob for bringing the drive-in back. So much fun. And if what we do here is valuable to you and you would like to support that, we would certainly love for you to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash magiclantern. The $5 a month level gets you access to a big backlog of bonus episodes and those come out on the Mondays alternating with regular episodes so you never have to go a week without new Magic Lantern in your life. I put up a whole raft of Edgar Allan Poe short story readings for Coloween this year. Those are there for patrons at every level to enjoy as a thank you for the support. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast on any of those platforms. We are on Twitter, at lantern underscore cast. And we actually have another regular episode coming here in just a couple of days. So all of our normal thank yous and acknowledgements will show up there. In the meantime, if you're sharing the show or talking about us, please make sure to tag us so we can say thanks. You can find the show on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, just about anywhere you get your podcasts, you can find us. If you'd like to leave a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate that. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material at the website, magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. 